0: Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for this time that we can come together as brothers and sisters, co heirs with Christ Jesus to bring you our praise and our love and our thanksgiving. And now, God, I pray that you will help us to be good stewards of your word, to examine carefully to see if what we hear today is truly in your word and of your word. And then, God, help us to weigh these truths, and allow these things to change our lives, our thinking, and our hopes. Um, Speak to us now by the agency of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I became a Christian in the early 1970s, and during that time, there was a heightened fervor and expectation that Jesus was coming soon. Originally, that idea started because, um, you know, Jesus says, surely I tell you, This generation shall not pass away until all these things have taken place. Well, they came to the conclusion that since Israel was established as a state in 1948 and generation is 40 years, that Jesus had to come before 1988 in order to fulfill that that prophecy. And then, of course, in the 1970s, um, there was a a book that came out, uh, Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and remember that book that, that he, he wrote? It was a, it was a fiction work, uh, dramatically uh, uh, portrayed these images of the rapture, and this dominated fundamental Christian thinking. And Lindsay describes the rapture in, in words of a fictional reporter, and among the things he says was, there I was driving down the freeway, and all, all of a sudden the place went crazy, cars going in all directions, not one of them had a driver. A sports journalist noted, only one minute to go and they fumbled. Our quarterback recovered. He was about a yard from the goal line when zap, no more quarterback, completely gone, just like that. A United Nations spokesman announced to all peace-loving people of all the world um, that we are making every human effort possible to assist those nations whose leaders have disappeared. Of course, images like that were replayed over and over again especially if you were in a youth group like I was back then because we were we were taught almost in the sense of fear you better get your life right with the lord or you're going to get left behind remember that the people are going to be suddenly vanishing and nobody's going to know what happened to them nobody's going to be aware when all of these christians suddenly dis- well somebody's going to be aware if you were driving down a freeway and a an empty car went past you you would be aware something was <laughs> going <laughs> any rate Um, Of course, the moral of the story is for every youth group meeting and every camp revival that when Christ returns, you don't want to get left behind in in your sin and disbelief, which then led to a very speculative book by Tim LaHaye, which came out in 1995, Um, again with the same conclusion that there's going to be this secret rapture, Christians are going to get whisked off the face of the earth, and you don't want to be left behind when that takes place then in the year 2000 or coming up to the year 2000 the great y2k fear a lot of people thought well jesus is going to be coming because there's going to be a collapse of everything that we know of and if he doesn't come we're going to get driven back into the stone age so there's a heightened sense that jesus was returning soon then a little bit more recently a uh, a guy by the name of Harold Camping, he predicted the date of Christ's return to be October 21, 2001. A number of his followers were so convinced that he was right that they sold their possessions. They went around preaching that Christ was returning in October of 2011, excuse me. And, uh, of course, nothing happened. What happened was that a lot of Christians felt a sense of embarrassment that uh, these prophecies about Christ's return didn't come true, and a lot of other people just became wearied of the whole eschatological fiasco, eschatology being the study of the last things. They become weary and embarrassed about all the hysteria that was associated with the Lord's second coming, but we're not done yet because then Tim LaHaye you know, when I was a kid, Tim LaHaye wrote all kinds of books. He wrote books about marriage advice, and before he wrote the Left Behind series, people called him Tim, I know something about everything LaHaye. When he, when he came out with the Left Behind books, that changed everything, because now he's Tim, I'm a millionaire LaHaye. Tim, Tim LaHaye writes the, this fiction book, which then became so popular in evangelical Christianity that a lot of Christians started forming their theology around the book and around Tim LaHaye's fiction work rather than what the bible says according to this thinking which was not even known before the middle of the last century according to this thinking christ comes with this secret rapture he comes part way and he sucks the christians off the face of the earth and then he goes back to heaven for this uh, uh, second stage to take place and the second stage of his coming where he comes a second second time Only this time, he's revealing himself in uh, judgment to publicly judge the sinners. Um, The teachers of this secret rapture theory will have to admit that though the text in the Bible that we are looking at today is the only text in the Bible which teaches the the rapture directly, you can't form a theology around this one text. Even guys like John MacArthur will say that... uh, no solitary text of scripture makes an entire case for the secret rapture. So that's true, there's no text in the scripture, though the one we're looking at today is the only one that deals with the rapture proper. We have to come up with a system of understanding, not from one single text, but from collectively looking at many different Bible texts. But coming up with the concept of the secret rapture is drawn rather from inferences rather than on scripture. It comes from a presupposed system of doctrine rather than on what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm going to make a lot of enemies today. I understand that. People are deeply entrenched with their view of eschatology, and they don't want people messing with it. I get that. I've been a pastor long enough to know that people want to hear me tell them over and over again that what they already believe is true. But what I want you to do is I want you to examine what I'm having to say today against what does the scripture teach, because I am not trying to persuade you away from your view of eschatology. I'm certainly not trying to sell you on mine, because I don't have one. I have not been convinced of a view of eschatology that I'm willing to die on the hill for. I want rather that this church is biblical, that we are biblical Christians rather than Armenians and Calvinists or Presbyterians or Baptists or anything else, that we are biblical Christians. In a sense, what does the Bible teach rather than what does some fiction writer say? Our task before us today is to examine what Paul teaches in this text. It is not to create a systematic theology, but what does the Bible say in this text? So we need to approach this text carefully because we need to be careful that we are not reading into the text what Paul does not say, or that we are adding some fanciful speculation into something that we want to be true rather than what the Bible actually says. Now with that introduction, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen. First Thessalonians four thirteen. Rustle some pages, so I think you're turning there any anyway. rate. Now, now remember, remember Paul's goal in writing this letter is to teach Christians how they should live in light of Christ's coming again. I think that'd be a great model. I mean, it dressed up a little bit. That'd be a great motto for a church, to teach believers how to live in the sure expectations of Christ's soon return, how to, how to live life and how to face death in the reality of Christ's return. Now, in this passage from uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 13, Paul gets very specific about the topic of the coming of Christ. It's been in every single chapter of this text, but it gets really specific here because apparently some of the Thessalonians had been expecting Christ to return at any moment, and some of them had died. And they're wondering what happens to those believers who died because are they going to miss out when Christ comes? They're already dead. Are they missing out on what takes place when the Lord returns. And now it's very clear that Paul had been teaching them about the second coming of Christ. That that's, makes sense because that is a, a, a principle, a foundational principle in Christianity. Jesus himself speaks a lot about his second coming to his disciples. He talks about the resurrection, he talks about the ascension, he talks about the second coming. And these are central parts of the gospel message. But still, the Thessalonians, like us, have questions because it seems rather strange because involved with the second coming of Christ is the doctrine of the resurrection. And that seems very strange to them because they come from a culture which does not recognize, as our culture doesn't recognize, that you could come back from being dead. One example was that Paul was in Athens and he's arguing with the philosophers on Mars Hill and they're listening to him patiently until he gets to the question of the resurrection of the dead. And then they think, you are an idiot. And they, they call him an idle babbler. And they say, this is Acts 17, verse 18. Who is this idle babbler? And they mocked him because of the idea of the resurrection. They found it um, worse than strange. They found it something they simply could not expect. We do, too. Uh, it, we also believe that once you're dead, I don't mean this church, I mean our culture. We, we believe that once you're dead, you're dead. No mas ultra. There's nothing more beyond. It's just the great sleep. So it's not surprising that these Thessalonian Christians have been wrestling with this implication of Christ's return, the resurrection, what happens to believers who die and they're awaiting Christ's return. Where are they? What are they doing what takes place in in the meantime. And so Paul is giving us this this, uh, reflection here uh, to not only the Thessalonians, but to this church too, to give us peace and hope, confidence and joy as we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ and to the resurrection of the dead. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, I gotta find it here. We'll read the whole passage and then we'll go back over it. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive and left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he begins by saying, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. This verse I think is used in practically every funeral, every, just about every funeral that I have heard or given makes a reference to this verse, because when we're faced with the death of someone, especially if it's someone that, that's dear to us, someone that's close to us, we have questions. You know, we want to know, well, well, where are they? You know, what are they experiencing right now? And, and what's happened to them? Are they all right? You know, are they going to recognize me when, when, we, when we meet again? These are the kind of questions that we have, and so it's no wonder that we refer to a text like this at a funeral because we want to know what's going on, what what to expect. And it's it's a passage like this that that, that gives us that that confidence. This this is a passage which gave comfort and hope 2,000 years ago to the Thessalonians in the face of death. It is a passage which still gives us hope today. Now notice, Paul does not say Christians should not grieve. He's He does not say that that if you believe in the gospel, if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe in the coming of Christ again, that you shouldn't grieve in the face of death because grief is a perfectly natural feeling when you've lost someone. You grieve because there's a separation from someone that you've enjoyed their relationship with. Grief is actually very honorable to the person who, who's died because you're expressing that you recognize that this is a gift of God and you want to give honor to their memory and you want to give, give thanks to God. There's nothing wrong with Christians feeling deep emotional grief when someone they love has died. That's not what Paul says here. He says, I don't want you to grieve as people who are hopeless do. It's a different kind of grief among those who are without hope. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, there's two truths here in verse 14. One of them is a, a past truth, and one of them is a future truth. And both of these truths give us hope in the hour of death. And the first truth is, Jesus has risen, and the second truth is, and so will you. Jesus has risen from the dead. The future is, and so will you. So will we. What Paul is saying is what happened to Jesus will also happen to you. Um, if, if there are believers who are alive at the coming of, of Christ, they will be translated. We won't spend time there, but anyone else... Who's not alive, and it, that may include all of us. That we don't live to see the return of Christ. If that's so, you're going to die. All of us are going to die. It's like, um, what about Bob? You know, what have we got to be afraid of anymore? We're all going to die. That's a reality. We we will all die. But the hope for the Christian is that's not the end. Because one, we want to know what happens in the meantime, and two. How do I know that I'm gonna be resurrected from the dead? That's really great. Those are very pleasant platitudes, show me. Really, isn't that the question we wanna know? I mean, I ask that all the time. How is it, God, that after I've been dead 100 years and my body is totally decayed into nothing, how is it that you are going to resurrect me back to physical life? If it just has a physical problem with that promise. Now, Paul here makes a reference to, to death Three times in three consecutive verses, and he calls it asleep or sleep. Uh, So you have verse 13, verse 14, verse 15. He refers to death as sleep. Now, in the Christian context, it makes sense to talk about someone who's dead as asleep because one, their body is laid to rest; it is waiting to be woken up. So it's in an intermediate stage. It it is. It's like being asleep but it's a, it's a language that we're actually familiar with because we've seen it elsewhere in the Bible. Daniel chapter uh, 12, verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Also, when Jesus was about ready to resurrect, uh, temporarily resurrect a reanimation more of his friend Lazarus, he refers to it as sleep. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I'm going to wake him up. So it makes sense because the human corpse is laid in the grave, it is inanimate, it is resting, but it is also await, awaiting to the, the resurrection. So it's appropriate for, for us to call the dead in Christ asleep. By the way, it's an interesting thing that we call graveyards cemeteries. The word comes from coimeterion which also means cemetery or dormitory. So the cemetery is the place where the dead sleep. They're, it's a, they're, they're there in this interim period of time. But notice Paul is making a distinction that though the body is asleep, he's not saying and so is the soul. There's no reference here to soul sleep. The body is inanimate, the body is laid in the ground, but the soul goes immediately into the presence of God. Uh, of Christ. And so Jesus taught that in his own teaching, uh, remember, let's see if I can find it. Uh, the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16 19 through31, Jesus talks about these two guys died. One of them goes to the be in the presence of Abraham, one of them is a place that is he's miserable. So what do we know about that? That their conscience, and one of them is conscious of being miserable, and one of them is conscious about, about being in a place of delight. So, And then uh, Paul, when he talks about to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. And he talks later about it, which is better, you know, to, to be here with Christ, for, for, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. In order for gain to be, to, for dead to be gain, and he has to be conscious of this is a better reality of, of being in the presence of Christ than the one I'm currently existing. So the case I'm building here is just for a consciousness of the person in this intermediate stage being in the presence uh, of Christ. Um, and again, that 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 is a reference to everyone in Christ who dies between now and the time when Christ comes again, that... So assuming that we are not part of that generation, that when Christ comes and we do die, we have the confidence that we will be together with Christ wherever he is and wherever our loved ones are. Um, Verse 15, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he makes it immediately clear that the Christian hope is twofold. One, our hope, the thing we look forward to, the thing we long for is the coming of Christ. But beyond that, even more so maybe, the coming of Christ means the resurrection of those who have died in him. So when he, he comes, we're looking for those, that, that twofold fulfillment. The, the coming of the Lord, and the word here is parousia, the word parousia is one that's become a technical term for the, the coming of Christ, but actually it had a, a, a double meaning in, in the past. It served as, a, it, first of all, it served as a, an explanation of a, of a religious cult when their uh, deity would show himself present and, and powerful. That was called the parousia. And the second meaning had to do with if a, if a king or a dignitary, an emperor, was, was to make a sudden appearance, um, uh, at, at the at the gates of the city, this this sudden visitation that was called the Parousia. I think Paul is combining these two ideas. You have the the arrival, the the presence of the deity, and the coming of a king, combined into one concept here. And so he's using this term Parousia in that technical way of of the powerful personal visitation of. Uh, of God who is coming in the visit of this king. Again, our hope is more than just that the king is coming. Our hope is that when the king comes, he brings those who are now in his presence with him and that we are caught up together with them because we have been separated by death. There's this separation of us from our loved ones and they're wondering at this point, is there, therefore, a separation of those who are dead from Christ? And Paul is teaching us, no, There, ultimately, the, the dead are, are the first ones to be with Christ. They are not the ones who are left behind. They are in the presence of, of Christ, and when Christ comes again, their resurrection takes place first before the, the, the gathering up. So in no way are they left behind, in fact, it's just the opposite. They're first in line um, to, to, to be in the presence of Christ. Now, he says that Jesus doesn't die alone in the sense that only, but uh, if God did not abandon Jesus to the grave, because of our connection with him, God will not abandon us to the grave either. He will not leave us dead. And just as God mm-hmm. raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise us um, with him too. So there's, a, there's an intricate connection between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the saint. Uh, verse 16. It seems like I'm jumping ahead. I am because I have a lot of material to cover. Uh, verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So you have this, again, this this combination of the term parousia, now with the presence of the Lord himself, and this proclamation here that when that parousia takes place, there is this divine proclamation which announces both the coming of Christ and the calling of the dead to uh, resurrection. So the, the... You remember when God creates, God speaks, and creation comes into being. From nothing to everything, God speaks, and creation takes place. God gives this word of command, and it happens. And similarly, Jesus goes to the grave of Lazarus, and when he commands, he speaks, he commands, Lazarus, come forward, come out of the grave, and Lazarus responds obediently to the summons. And so we have... Very similar thing happening here, the first of these three aspects of the announcement. God commands, he gives this command, he calls forth, he orders the dead back to, back to, to living. He commands this, this action, and the dead respond in obedience. God speaks, and it happens. Now, notice, too, that there's, there's nothing secret about this rapture. You have the command of the voice of God. You have the, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. This would be, would be terrifying, it, it, but the point is it's very public. The cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet. Leon Morris says, it's difficult to see how Paul could, be more, plain, could more plainly describe something that is open and public. Um, Kim Riddleberger agrees, and he says the whole thrust of the threefold announcement is that God Himself will proclaim the return of Jesus Christ so loudly that the whole earth will hear it. The images in so much popular Christian literature of believers searching or unbelievers searching for missing Christians with no idea that Christ has come is utterly contrary to the Bible's description. Revelation's chapter one, verse seven: Behold, He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see it. Jesus said, Matthew twenty four, twenty-seven, as far as the the lightning striking in the east and is seen to the west, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Everyone will know that it took place. There's nothing secret about the arrival of Christ or the resurrection that takes place at that time. It is it is very public. Now, in all fairness, we have to agree that. The whole concept of the secret rapture is believed by people, Christians, who are very literal about interpreting the Bible and are very courageously devoted to to following Jesus. The point of assessing and critiquing this teaching is not to mock them. It is to challenge you to rightly handle the word of truth. And Riddleberg's summary here is often given in a, a spirit of respectful disagreement, and that's kind of what I'm hoping to lay out for you here, a spirit of respectful disagreement, when he says, the theory of the secret rapture cannot be justified from the Scriptures. Now, think about what's taking place here, when the countless bodies which have been laid in the grave are suddenly resurrected and standing on their feet. You know, when I was, my, uh, my family's from Missouri and Uh, Whenever we go back there, we visit our family cemetery, and here are these graves of my my aunt, my uncle, my grandparents, their parents, um, their parents' parents, clear back to the early 1800s, 1811. Yeah, and it it occurs to me when I when I'm there, I stand over this grave and I imagine my grandfather, who was a little boy, would have been at this cemetery laying to rest people that he knew, his mom, his dad, his, grand, his grandparents and so forth, his son, and all of the weeping that took place at this graveyard at that moment. And then he himself being laid into the grave, very same cemetery, right next to his wife, right next to his son, right next to his daughter. And I think about all of the tears that are shed at a cemetery over the years. One day, however, that is going to be the most joyful place to be in the world. When all of those Christians are resurrected and they stand on their feet, not spiritually, but physically, not theoretically, but really and practically, they stand on their feet to welcome the coming of Christ, to be gathered together with the whole church. What an amazing thing that will be. On the last day. You know, we're not, our destiny is not to be floating around in some ethereal heaven forever and ever. Our destiny is a physical, real resurrection in in this body. It is is a bodily resurrection. Now, the resurrection is absolutely necessary for our salvation. It's not a nice add on. The resurrection of the body is an essential aspect of us being saved. Now, without being resurrected, you could be forgiven of your sins and you could be in the presence of God, but you could never be fully saved unless you include the resurrection because you can be justified by faith through Christ, but you're not fully sanctified until your body is finally what God meant it to be. So our body is part of what we need to inhabit and indwell the eternal kingdom that God has prepared for us. Our resurrection is absolutely necessary as part of our of our salvation. And Jesus said, or Paul says, I tell you this, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But what is the resurrection? Uh, the Greek word for the resurrection is anastasis. It, it means literally to, uh, to, to be raised up. So the resurrection is literally the raising up of our physical bodies. I don't fully understand how that's done. But I know this much that there is some continuity between the life the, the body that we possess now and the body which is resurrected. It's not something new, it's not an it's not a new uh, unfamiliar body. There's a there's a continuity with the one that we we have. I know that the resurrection will not be because of natural causes. This is what trips us up, really. You know, because we think, if you get burned up, if you get swallowed by a shark, if you know, if you get eaten by cannibals, if you rot and, and you just disappear, how, what does God have to work with here? I mean, he, <laughs> he might be really powerful, but there's, how do you resurrect something which from our perspective doesn't exist? This much I know. It's not because... Somebody reassembles all of our mortal remains during the lightning storm and has the, the, <laughs> the, the electric prods that go to us. That's not how God resurrects us. Uh, it will not be accomplished by any creature. No angel, no other created being can resurrect something that's dead. But rather, it is the work of the omnipotent, all-powerful God himself. The same God who calls creation into being by a word, out of nothing. He didn't take stuff that was already there and make you. He creates from nothing by the power of his word. That's the God who resurrects us. Jesus said, the Father raises the dead and gives them life. So, Realizing then that the divine cause of our resurrection is God Himself, that God created, it should come to our attention then that there are no barriers or any inability in God to raise us back um, to to life again. But then we want to know well, then, how do you know that you're going to be resurrected? It's a great promise. How do you know? Look back to verse 14. How can we be sure that there will be a resurrection of the dead on the last day? And Paul gives us the answer, for this we declare to you by a word of the Lord. Who says so? Paul? No. Paul is declaring to us this truth by a word of the Lord. So if the Bible is true and we have ample evidence to believe that it is, then we know that we can trust what God says to be true as well. We can fix our hopes, our aspirations, our confidence on the sure word that God does not lie and that God's word is recorded for it and he speaks the truth. But of course, the better question is not how do I know that there will be a resurrection? The better question is how do I know that in the resurrection that I will be raised to glory of eternal life? And the answer to that is found from Jesus who tells us that those who are raised in the resurrection are those whom have been chosen by God in his sovereign grace and thus they trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Jesus says, for all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will not cast out and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. So our confidence that we will be resurrected as if our faith for salvation and eternity is in the person of Christ Jesus. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up with them together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Again, as I mentioned in verse 15, the word parousia just has to do with the, um, Paul describing a technical term for the arrival, the appearance, the the coming of Christ, and how that was a, a formal Roman understanding of a of an arrival of a dignitary, a, a king or high official who comes to visit a city. Now that concept is further strengthened by the word meet here, appentasis. Um, this this is a a, a very strong term. Also, Gene Green says, it's almost a technical term that describes the custom of sending a delegation outside the city to receive a dignitary who was on the way to town. Of course, there can be little um, confusion here that these Thessalonians understood this concept because they had recently been visited by by Pompey and then later by Octavian um, Caesar. So uh, similarly... uh, John Chrysostom, he, this is a guy who lived between 347 and I don't remember when he died, but early 400s, yeah, early 400s. Uh, he, he says, for when a king drives into a city, those who are honorable go out to meet him, but the condemned wait the judge within. Now, understood in this concept, this is depicting Christ who comes as this great king, this, this conquering ruler, this emperor, and he comes to his capital city with this great triumphal parade. Those who are his supporters joyfully leave the city, and they go out to greet him while he is still a ways off, and then they come with him back into the city. They usher him back to the city. They do not go out of the city to meet him and then go back with him to wherever he came from. This is depicting the king's coming, his supporters come out to join him, that's the image that Paul is trying to portray here with the coming of Christ, that his supporters join him and then bring him, they escort him, him back. And that should give us uh, more detail here on, on, uh, on what Paul is talking about. The other thing he talks about here is, is, is the word caught up, uh, harpazo, from which we get the word rapture. Now you see this is a sudden gathering uh, Philip was was raptured. He was suddenly snatched from the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, the the wolf the, sh- the wolf snatches the, the sheep. John uh, ten. Uh, the the kingdom of God is taken by force. Matthew eleven. The word rapture talks about suddenness, uh, surprise. Uh, uh, this 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 gripping of 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 christ 's people to be drawn up by his sovereign power, so when you combine this heavenly meeting, by the way there 's nothing here in our text that talks about us being changed, but in first Corinthians 15 fifty or fifty one when we should put this on our nursery, it says we shall, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed but <laughs> But Paul doesn't talk about this transformation that takes place at the rapture here. That's someplace we have to go outside the text to look at here. But he's talking about being caught up, um, suddenly gripped, so that the point is that the descending saints and the ascending saints are caught up together. He uses many different words here, in the clouds, in the air. They're caught up together and they're joined together because the important part here is the separation that they're feeling from those who have died and their fear that those who have died are separated from Christ. And he's saying that's not the case at all. We're, we're caught up together with them and we will be together with the Lord forever. That's his theme here, is that that, that we, are, we are united with the Lord. So Paul has been content to offer us rather brief uh way of explaining four great eschatological truths here. Reunion, resurrection, no, return, resurrection, rapture, and reunion, those four things. Return, resurrection, rapture, and reunion. How are we then going to react to the teaching which comes to us from this first century uh, letter? Well, In any case, we must be very careful that we don't embroider it with instructions of fanciful speculations or even worse yet, try to stretch the text to beyond what the apostle was trying to say. That's what I keep trying to reiterate here. What does the text say? Let's stick to the text. Verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul is giving us and them not only an admonition to encourage each other, but a reason to encourage each other. Why? Because you're not like those who have no hope. You should encourage one another. There's a sense of hopelessness now. There was a sense of hopelessness in in Paul's time, too. Um, Theocritus was a Greek uh, poet in the third century B.C., and he writes, "'Hopes are for the living. Without hope are the dead.'" A Latin poet by the name of uh, Catullus in 84 B.C. writes, The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, we must sleep a never-ending l- night. And many of the inscriptions on the graves that were found in Thessalonica, among them was this one. I wonder how he chiseled all these words. Because of her special disposition and good sense, her devoted husband, Eutropus created this tomb for her and also for himself in order that the latter would have a place to rest together with his dear wife when he looks upon the end of life and has been spun out for himself by the indissoluble threads of fate. There's a lot of chiseling on the tombstone. What it points out to is that there was very little expectation of anything beyond the grave. And the best thing this guy had to hope for is that when he died, die, his body would lie next to his wife. That was his best and final expectation. There was a popular inscription that was written in both Greek and Latin, and it became so popular that it was just the the initials that were later used, NF, uh, NFF, NFF. Uh, N-S-N-C. So it, it stands for non-fui, fui, non-sum, fui non curo. Non so I, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. So that, <laughs> that became so popular that they just would write that out, you know, like R, R-I-P, you know, rest in peace or whatever. It, 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 a lot of the tombs just said that, the, the initials of that. Another gravestone in Rome pessimistically states, we are nothing. See, reader, how quickly we mortals return to nothing. And then another Latin inscription in Italy reads, if you want to know who I am, the answer is ash and burnt embers. So there's ample proof that in Paul's day, the overarching feeling in the face of death was hopelessness. And that's really, if we're to be honest with ourselves, what is the overarching feeling of the world today in the face of death? It's that it ends in nothing, and there's hopelessness. And why does Paul say that? The reason that Paul asserts that the world is hopeless is it is without God and without hope in the world, having no hope. But in contrast, Paul is telling these Thessalonians, you, you do have a reason for hope. You are not like those who are without God. And so he tells us in Second uh, Corinthians 5.8, We are of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body because to be away from the body is to be home with the Lord. And then that brings us back to verse 14. Uh, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And one of the chief problems I think we have with end times fervor today is that all of the attention is on anything except Christ himself. People who are, eschatologically speculative, you know, they rack their brains listening to the news broadcast and reading the paper because they want to find some kind of evidence, some kind of documentation that that tells us that we're in the end times and that we have reason to be afraid and to fear because it's all about to come crashing down. The scope, the purpose of Paul's writing here is not that you should be afraid that that the clock is winding down, but that you should be looking for Jesus. You should be expecting his his return. And that's why Paul sums up his message here by saying, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, I realize that this message cuts across what some of you have concluded about the return of Christ. I'm not trying to create controversy. I'm just challenging you to show me what you believe in Scripture, that what you derive to be your theology does not come from fiction books, whether it's left behind or Harry Potter, what you believe comes from the word of God. What does the scripture say? Let's close in prayer. I'll invite the men who'll be dispersing the elements if you'll come forward at this time too. Father, we thank you that your word is alive and it speaks to us and that you don't let us create our own fanciful interpretation You tell us what is true, and I pray as good stewards of your word that we are content with that and that we don't need to add to your word or to reinterpret it to fit what we've already decided to be true. We want to be faithful, biblical Christians, nothing more, nothing less. Now, Father, as we turn to this um, communion table, we ask that you would set aside these common elements, this bread, this wine, To represent for us the body of Christ, his perfect life lived out for us, the blood of Christ which was poured out for us, which satisfies your wrath, the price for our sin has been paid. And in order to see the sinners that we are, you must first look through the blood of Christ which covers us. In all of these things, God, we remember as we take this communion, we look past, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus makes. And we do this regularly because we look forward to when you come again. And so, Father, I pray that as we share this communion with one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, we remember that there is a great banquet yet waiting for us when you come again. Lord, let that continue to be our focus and our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.